0: You can find more information about our upcoming classes, lectures, uh, bus trips, behind-the-scenes tours, and other events uh, at our website or pick up information at the museum shop. So, as always, in addition to welcoming those of you in the audience today, I'll remind you that there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to the recordings of these programs online, and that our banner lectures are only made possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times Dispatch and our members. If you enjoy these programs and are not a member, please consider supporting them by joining the Virginia Historical Society. It's really easy to do at our website, www.vahistorical.org. Tracing Thomas Jefferson's philosophical development from youth to old age, Today's speaker will explore what he calls the empire of Jefferson's imagination, an expansive state of mind born of his origins in a slave society, his intellectual influences, and the vaulting ambition that propelled him into public life as a modern avatar of the Enlightenment, who at the same time likened himself to a figure of old, the most blessed of the patriarchs. Indeed, Jefferson saw himself as a patriarch, not just to his country and mountain-like home at Monticello, but also to his family, the white half that he loved so publicly, as well as to the black side that he claimed to love, a contradiction of extraordinary historical magnitude. Peter S. Onuf, Thomas Jefferson Professor of History Emeritus, And senior research scholar at Monticello is the author and editor of many publications, including Jefferson's Empire, The Language of American Nationhood, The Mind of Thomas Jefferson, and most recent, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination, which he co wrote with Annette Gordon Reed, and which he will be happy to sign copies for you after the lecture. Peter is also author of The State of the World, Thomas Jefferson's Political Vision, in the exhibition catalog, The Private Jefferson, Perspectives from the Collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Many of you also know him as co-host, the 18th Century Guy, of the popular public radio program and podcast, Backstory with the American History Guys. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Peter S. Oniff.
1: Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. It's a privilege to be here and wonderful to see a full house in Richmond, Virginia. I just came down from Maine, where I now live, to escape winter. (laughs) Yesterday was a nice start, but I don't know about today. It is great to be here. I'd like to start, I'm usually these days in the company of my co-author, Annette Gordon-Reed, who is one of my dearest friends in the world. And it's been a great privilege to work with her. And I'll tell you a little bit before we get going of how I was recruited to do this and start with the shaming admission that if you Google me, and all of you who have devices are welcome to do that right now, (laughs) you'll find that I am described in Google as a biographer. And this is devastating for me because I trained as a serious historian who was not interested in biography. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) in one of my books, I describe myself as an (laughs) anti-biographer. I don't care about your life. Uh, I was trained to be a kind of social science historian. We were analytical, we were tough, we were big thinkers. And I don't do people as a rule. (laughs) Well, here he is, he's a person, the inescapable person in my life who's dominated it for the last quarter century, that would be Thomas Jefferson. So despite myself, I've uh, done a lot of oblique biographical work. And thanks to Annette, now I've come out of the closet and I am a biographer. (laughs) (laughs) And I apologize for that preemptively. Uh, I would never have dreamed of doing this book if Annette hadn't urged me to do it. And uh, she's on her way to writing a big, definitive, two-volume biography of Jefferson, which will displace Dumas Malone and will have a Jefferson for our age. Uh, In the process, she thought it would be a nice idea for us to collaborate on what you might call generously a thematic biography, a set of interlocking essays that do cover the life, but they're intended to draw your attention to key themes that we think are illuminating in Jefferson's life. Now, her motivation for this was that she was afraid I would go out to pasture. You're all of a certain age. I shouldn't generalize, but we do that. You're all basically my peers out there, I think. And the pasture is an attractive place for old war horses. (laughs) I'm eager to be there! And she said, well, no, we're not going to let that happen. Uh, I need to keep you uh, fit and in good training. Uh, So would you consider doing this? And uh, the reason I'm doing it is uh, I love Annette, and it was an opportunity to work with her. It's as simple as that. It's the same reason I have done Backstory over the years, is I love Ed and Brian, my colleagues. And uh, this is pretty pathetic. This is my testimonial in front of all of you, and now you'll tell everybody that it's for these mundane, very personal reasons that I do what I do. And if there's any collateral benefit from it to you and to anybody else, then that's wonderful. But in the meantime, I've been having a great time. So, (laughs) hooray, and congratulations on being as old as you are. Uh, let, Let me get into this book a little bit. Andy stole some of my thunder. We always start with this idea of patriarch. How can you call the great Democrat a patriarch? Does that make any sense? Where does Jefferson's democracy come from? If you had to identify anybody in the early period who was, to adapt my earlier language, an anti-Democrat, it would be Thomas Jefferson in the sense that he had tremendous sophistication. He was a man of the Enlightenment, and to be a man of the Enlightenment was to mark yourself apart from everybody else. It was to see further. It was to have a sense of how things were in the world and how they would be, to understand the laws of nature, to see how nature's God, who's mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, of course, and if you're looking for something other than PowerPoint, which I don't do. I do have a necktie, which is the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> and there's some reference there to nature's God. The idea that everything makes sense and that if you understood how that world operated, you could improve it. Improvement is a key word in the Enlightenment, making things better. Now, of course, we think, and I'm reminded, you're old enough to be reminded too, of Ronald Reagan in Death Valley talking about progress being our most important product. Do you all remember that? I say this is a wonderfully interactive audience. At least for Andy, you were. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes. Uh, If you had to take a slogan from the 1950s and examine it now in the new context that we live in, who believes in progress anymore? In fact, we're much more afraid of what new technologies will do to us. Have you heard that driverless cars will be used to gather information about you? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, you're laughing. <laughs> it's happening right now. We are data points. That's a, a, a kind of a deflated version of being a citizen, isn't it? You're a, a data point. And that old suggestion I thought was very amusing but on point, that maybe we should be paid for using the internet. Now, what do you think about that? I Every time I check in someplace, I want my share. <laughs> this wasn't what you came to hear. Uh, <laughs> but I do it for comparative purposes. One of the things I love most about Jefferson, and I have to tell you, right up in front, I am deeply conflicted about Jefferson, if you want to know more about that in my psychic state, we'll go into it later. But one of the things you have to love, and I'm now demanding that you love him too, is his belief in progress, that things could be better. One of the reasons you could believe in progress is, and it's hard for us to conjure up his world, is that Jefferson and his contemporaries knew so little about it when they could figure anything out, that was a revelation. And revelation is a good word because it's as if God's work were being opened up to those who paid the most attention to it, who studied it. The natural philosophers, as they called themselves, we think of Jefferson as a renaissance man, as the usual term applied to him. What that means is he had the broad array of interests in everything that reflected the sensibility of the Enlightenment. It's all connected. You might, to use a 20th century word, think of him as a holistic thinker. It's all related. We now all live or have lived in silos where we don't communicate with anybody else because we have specialties. We do things in a certain way. We have our own languages. This is another wonderful thing about the Enlightenment, that notion that it's all comprehensible Yet at the same time, in a way incomprehensible, we don't know it yet. And I'm not going to talk much about Jefferson's religious faith, though I think it's an important theme in the book. But you might say that scientific research, as we would call it now, is a form of prayer, is a form of worship. The idea that there's something antithetical between between religion and science, which is a conceit of the 19th and 20th centuries, as if these are hostile ways of comprehending the world, the cosmos. Well, that's not where Jefferson and his colleagues come from. There's no conflict there. There shouldn't be any conflict. Of course, he has no patience for stupid beliefs in things like the Trinity, and all Trinitarians can now leave the room if you're (laughs) uncomfortable oh, this is beautiful because, you know, Jefferson said, uh, no offense to you women, he said, one day every young man in America will be a Unitarian. <laughs> this is a big enough crowd so that I guess there'll be at least one formerly young Unitarian in the room. Would you self-identify? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, that's uh, uh, Well, we do, this quantitative work all the time. Is it true there's no Unitarian out there? (laughs) Really? I know one. I love it. What a prediction. No. There's what? 250, 300 people out there, Andy? 500? Oh, you're freaking me out. (laughs) 488? Okay. And no Unitarians? Okay, well, I was raised one. Uh, one of the problems is um, uh, they disappear uh, because uh, the Unitarians, when I was raised, didn't really believe in anything. Uh, we spent all our religious education going to other churches. <laughs> anyway, uh, there was a time when Jefferson's belief in the unity of the Godhead did not mark him off, at least in his own mind, as some kind of awful heretic. It, in fact, was for him the threshold of a broader belief in the miracle of creation. Uh, One of the wonderful things of his exchanges with John Adams in late life is they talk about these issues. And the idea of intelligent design, have you heard that one? That comes up in the deist conversations that they have about the world because one of the things they revere is that idea that it all makes sense only we don't get it that is it's not comprehensible to us yet the difference between that kind of faith and the faith of a modern believer is that faith of the modern believer is in transcendent truths that will never be tested in time in fact are all about our faith beyond history beyond time Jefferson's faith and the faith of fellow progressive Enlightenment reformers is that things will get better and that we have some agency in that, understanding the laws of nature in our own lifetimes, but more importantly, and this will be one of the major features of my talk if I get to it, more importantly, (laughs) in the experiences of our children and our children's children. Well, that's my (laughs) warm-up. Now, let's talk. And let me tell you what Annette and I thought we were doing. One of the things that we react against, I should say two of the things. One is that you can't know Jefferson because he is a sphinx. He's got secrets. You'll never penetrate him. He is impenetrable, to borrow a word from Merrill Peterson, my distinguished predecessor at UVA, he will be a mystery forever because he doesn't give us the kind of endless confessional babble that you get from John Adams. (laughs) (laughs) All Jefferson scholars have suffered from this sense that they're not studying John Adams, for whom everything is out there on his sleeve. You know about John Adams. He's neurotic, and we love neurotic people. (laughs) We keep looking for evidence that Jefferson couldn't sleep at night because he was guilty about the institution of slavery. Please, Jefferson, tell us that you're having deep troubles with the institution of slavery. And I'm not saying he didn't. I don't want to trivialize this. But he is difficult to get at, and that's been a problem. And one of the manifestations of that problem is the tendency for us to either love Jefferson or hate him. If we had an ongoing poll among Americans, and specifically among Jefferson scholars, how do you feel about Jefferson today? What's his status now that Hamilton is a culture hero? (laughs) And Jefferson's big claim to fame is that the title of our book came from a letter that he wrote to... Hamilton's sister-in-law, Angelica Schuyler Church, now featured on Broadway. (laughs) Anybody seen that show? Yes? There's some yeses out there. So we have maybe 20 yeses? That's a rough estimate compared to no Unitarians. Okay. (laughs) 20 Hamiltonians. No Unitarians. And didn't Hamilton want to establish a society of Christian constitutionalists or something, John Kukla will be able to nod intelligently in response to that. There's a religious man for you, you can identify with Alexander Hamilton. So the problem is that we read into Jefferson because we don't know him, therefore we're licensed to impute to him those things that make us feel good about ourselves, whether it's in hating him or loving him. Makes sense to you because now that we know there are 20 self-professed ticket-paying Hamiltonians in the room and probably many fellow travelers out there, okay, so we know where you stand. Uh, So what is it about Jefferson? Why can't we get into him? And Annette and I operate under under the premise that that's not a problem at all. It's our problem, it reflects, says more about us than it does about Jefferson. Jefferson's not hiding anything from us. The way to penetrate him is to follow him into his home and into his life at home, and then come out of that home with him and see the world. There's much more integrity in, coherence in his life than our abuses, misuses of the Jefferson image would allow. Okay, so here's the simple idea. The word patriarch uh, evokes, and as Andy brilliantly said, uh, both patriarch of the country, patriarch of father, well, George Washington, he's father of the country, but Jefferson ideologically standing for the principles articulated in the Declaration of Independence, you could say he's the kind of father, of course, Jefferson himself would say, no, no, please, I was just channeling the American people, as he says famously in a letter to Henry Lee late in his life. I didn't write the Declaration of Independence. It wrote itself through me. He was, and another cultural reference for you old people, he was the Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> I just know what you're feeling, folks. I mean, <laughs> it's like the zeitgeist, dude, and I get it. And I'm gonna write it down for you. That's, of course, an extreme case of false modesty. He gloried in his authorship of the Declaration. As he says on his tombstone, it's one of the three things he wants to be remembered for. Well, where does Jefferson come from might be the question that we ask. Where do his ideas come from? Can we make that radical distinction between life and mind? And this is what many defenders of Jefferson have done. They've said, take what he says. This is what Merrill Peterson said. My former colleague Julian Boyd said this. Take the words of the Declaration. Take him at his word that he was articulating fundamental principles, principles that animated the revolution, Principles that have made the American experiment in Republican government an epical moment in world history. And forget the other stuff. Forget his private life. Forget just for a minute, please, that he owned hundreds of people over the course of his life. Forget for a while that we know he had a long-term relationship with one of the enslaved people, at Monticello, just put that aside. We're not saying it didn't happen, but the real important Jefferson is the one with those ideas. Well, I don't know about you. Are you clear about the idealistic, enlightened self and that nasty person who gets up every morning? No, you're not nasty. You're all wonderful people, but lives the kind of normal day-to-day lives that implicates you in evil. You feel bad because you live in America today? Are you part of the. No, I won't start another one of these sermons. <laughs> I was going to say something tasteless about the new inequality, and I have a solution for you if you're too rich. And it's three letters V H S. I don't want you to join just once, I want you to do it multiple times. Okay, why did I get off on that? It was (laughs) truly silly. All right, so I'm suggesting, and Annette is suggesting too, and this is what I loved about working with her, because we really, in our interests, replicate the putative division in his life. Annette never presumed to know who Jefferson was, she wanted to reconstruct the experiences of the Hemingses. And what I said to her and said on many occasions is I think your book on the Hemingses of Monticello is one of the best biographies of Jefferson that we have. You see the people he owns, with whom he lives, with whom he makes his life in motion. You follow them. And you follow him because uh, he owns them. And, of course, he makes the decisions about where they'll be and what they'll do within limits. We don't. We have to acknowledge there's, of course, agency for enslaved people. But if you look at him from that oblique outside perspective, you learn a lot about Thomas Jefferson So she's a social historian, a historian who's reconstructed lost lives in an admirable, Pulitzer Prize-winning fashion. And I've spent my life inside Jefferson's head, for better or worse. And I I will say, with appropriate modesty, I don't claim to truly understand him completely. I'm not Jefferson. For one thing, I'm a much better speaker than he was. But as I described myself at the beginning, I'm an anti-biographer, I don't care about lives, which is a very, oh, Olympian elite attitude, and I recognize that, characteristically academic. Uh, And I said, come back down to Earth. Uh, Join me at Monticello, let's see what we can do together. And one of the great privileges of this collaboration is doing some biography in the sense that I don't care about one thing after another because I can't remember them. It's a constant frustration. And it's a, a real professional, occupational liability for an historian not to know anything, but I really don't. But what I loved doing with Jefferson is exploring his psychology. What might have driven him? Particularly enjoyable was to look at Jefferson in Paris. And uh, for us, it's a pivotal chapter in the book because it enables us to get some perspective on how Jefferson's ideas evolved. One of the fallacies of most intellectual histories of Jefferson, including my own, is they take Jefferson to be a timeless person. You look at his entire archive, everything he ever wrote, And cull out the really juicy quotes and say, this is Jefferson forever. But of course, Jefferson is, believe it or not, and I hope this isn't too upsetting. I was warned that people might walk out more because they wanted to eat than that they were outraged. (laughs) Jefferson's a human being. I mean, he's just, he's not just like us. Nobody's just like us. Because we're wonderful, as we all learned when we watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I mean, he loved me, at least, the way I am. I don't know about you. All right, you're gonna say, is this guy ever gonna get serious? But it was in Paris, in those years, that Jefferson was able to look back at America and reach a broad judgment on what had happened there. To understand his revelations from abroad, you have to understand how much he suffered when he was here during his uh, gubernatorial, his catastrophic gubernatorial years, when he felt disgraced, when the British invaded, and there was nobody there to resist. This is the man who celebrated the spark of revolution that Patrick Henry set off who identified with it, who thought the revolution was everything, who identified it as much as Patrick Henry did with the spirit of 1776, and where was that spirit in the 1780s? He was much too close, and it was much too personal. He needed to get away. And when he did, he could see things differently. One of the things he saw in the comparative framework of the old regime in France was that, in fact, America, the new United States, came much closer to any Enlightenment person's idea of a good society, even including the institution of slavery. You, if you were a French intellectual and aristocrat, would say, well, there is this fundamental problem with the Americans. That is, they own slaves, as Samuel Johnson the British dictionary writer and polemicist put it, uh, where are the loudest yelps for liberty coming from, but from the mouths of slaveholders, that hypocrisy, that contradiction, that's been with us from the beginning of American history. That is, this is the land of the free, but it's also the empire of slavery. So, but Jefferson says, now let's look for a minute at France, at French society. Let's look at the vast and I'm coming back to this term again, the vast inequalities of the old regime, the ones that uh, we are now trying to replicate in our new regime. So much for progress. Anyway, those inequalities in which, to borrow from Voltaire, you are either the anvil or you are the hammer, lots more people constitute the anvil. Only a few of the privileged sort constitute the hammer. He would do something that political economists would do. They didn't have political scientists and economists, political economists, who are very interested, believe it or not, in the idea of happiness. One of the ways you can tell that a people is happy is their rates of reproduction. You think it's all love, you're romantic, you're, you've all made good arrangements, as far as I can tell from here. But it's the conditions that you have been born into that have enabled you to exercise the choices that have made you happy and that have brought great happiness to your families. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit because I know families are troubled things. That's one of our great discoveries in the modern period, that people beat up on each other, and I should say guys beat up on women because they're the, I don't know. You feel bad about being a guy? Am I, you identifying with me at all in this? It's, no, I somebody some militantly said no. I heard that over here. Okay, right. Uh, he's probably in one of those men's groups and they beat Tom Toms and so forth. They feel pretty good about themselves. Okay, uh, where were we going with that? Uh, <laughs> anyway, where I was going was with the idea of happiness that could be measured. The metric du jour was population growth. And what we had in America were salubrious conditions that were optimal for mortality, for long-lived lives, and for large family size. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, in 1751, in his essay on Population, it suggested, guess what? The population here is gonna double every 25 years. And that's not just because of importation of immigrants coming to America. This place is not just the hand, uh, the land of the free, but it's the land of high reproductive rates, and population is power. Now we know that's not true, we know things have changed, but this is the way contemporaries would think. Jefferson would look back from France and say, we have a high rate of family formation and population growth, the modal form of family, that is the normal form of family organization, is what we would call now, nostalgically, the nuclear family. For us, that kind of peaked in the 1950s and it's been downhill since then. Most of us don't live in those so-called nuclear families anymore. Yet, that ideal, that idea of family values, very important to Jefferson, and I would say that's one takeaway if you were taking notes, but I always discourage people from doing that. And I want you to shut off your devices now and stop taking notes. Family values... That's central to Jefferson's idea of what the American Revolution is all about. And you might see in that a hint of my larger argument, which has to do with the centrality of domesticity, of family formation, of the life in families to Jefferson's Republican politics. It's not as if home, the domain of his private life, is radically distinct from the public world in which he would constantly bombard his daughter Martha, particularly, but both daughters, and anybody who cared to listen, with how miserable it is to be in public life. And for him, this stark juxtaposition of the horrible, miserable life of a public servant, underscore servant, and the patriarch at home in the bosom of his family. He's really attracted to that notion of a family with a big bosom. Come in and sit by the fireside. Grandpa will be sitting there. Every so often, somebody will look up and say something witty or appropriate. Murmurs of conversation. Everybody loves him to death. Is it like that for you, my fellow old people? Where are our grandchildren when we need them? Uh, I'm sorry to be pandering to you in this way, but uh, it's my fantasy. I only get one grandchild, which is terrible. I deserve a lot more. (laughs) So we don't need a very big fireside. It could be like a Vermont casting stove, but sit around it. Anyway, this, this image of domestic bliss and happiness, the sentimental heart of Jefferson's politics, And one of the reasons it is a sentimental heart of his politics is that it's not something he lives much. As you know, he lost his wife. She died in 1782, after 10 years. And he borrowed his daughter and her family. They became his family in those idyllic later years at Monticello. But in a way, that makes my point. Jefferson looked back at America and saw that family form, saw the way he believed American society was organizing and replicating and expanding because, of course, it was family farms that was driving the expansion westward of settlement, of new societies, and this was a dream of imperial expansion. As he puts it in his First inaugural address, there's land enough out there for the thousandth to the thousandth generation. That image of America as expanding forever at other megalomaniac moments, he talks as if the world were the limit. What limit is there to the federative principle? He asks in his second inaugural address in 1805. New states. You could all be American one day. That notion that the Republican form of government was the default, the natural, the end point of history. You heard Francis Fukuyama say it. Well, Jefferson said it first. Once your eyes are open to these truths, once you see that every people must determine its own destiny, once they decide how they will rule themselves then we will all be Republicans. And you might add, to borrow from the First Inaugural Address, we would all be Federalists, too, with a small f, meaning that we would be drawn together. Here is a central principle, I want to add to that idea, first of all, of family values. And that is borrowed from Scottish moral philosophy in the 18th century, the great Enlightenment thinkers, like Lord Kames, Adam Smith, and others, an idea of natural sociability. That is, we recognize ourselves in each other and we are drawn to each other. What attaches us to each other? This is the profound question that Jefferson asked. Why do we come together? Is the world really a nasty, brutish, and short place, as Thomas Hobbes, the great English philosopher, described it? I like to say nasty, British, and short. Or is it a place that we can transform just as we transform the earth and that we, by being its husbandmen, its gardeners, can bring forth the fruit that enables us to multiply? That's combining. It's called a mashup in modern language, be fruitful and multiply, mix your labor with the earth. These are all enlightenment ideas. It's very inspiring, and it suggests that the only thing that's holding us back is the old regime, is the misbegotten idea that some people were born to rule everybody else. You heard this. All men are created equal. Am I right? Do you believe that? Really? <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, here's where I want to go. And I only have a few more minutes, and I'm just getting excited, as you can tell, (laughs) to elaborate some of these ideas. I wanna begin with the idea of family being the modal foundational form of social organization. And family is continuous with the family of families that constitutes a generation. Generation is one of the key terms I want to emphasize today. What do I mean by generation? What did Jefferson mean by generation? You've heard of the Sons of Liberty. One of the things that came with the historical consciousness of making a new world that patriot revolutionaries shared was the idea that they were drawn spontaneously together, and it was the spontaneous recognition and attraction of fellow patriots for each other, fellow patriarchs for each other. That notion of Sons of Liberty identified a particular generation, the generation of Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry and the other great revolutionary founders. They were a generation. As soon as you start thinking of yourselves as a generation, as we did in the 1960s, didn't we? We were so wonderful. <laughs> Tell me, what happened? <laughs> we blew it. I think there's an exact contemporary about to move into the White House. Enough said. I promise not to go there today. You've got a generation. As soon as you're conscious of being in a generation, a generation that made history, you don't want to go down, at least Jefferson doesn't want to go down, as the lawgiver, as the person who made it all happen, a kind of a God on earth, Jefferson, the founder. No, he said, We have started something. The next generation has got to continue the work. I talked before about the thousands to the thousands generation, that notion of national immortality. You might get a hint of the transmutation of religious ideas about the salvation of the soul in the afterlife. Now embodied in the history of our particular group of men and women and children, through the generations, this thing will never end, the United States of America. In his late life, he has a very moving correspondence with John Adams, and many of you have read it, I'm sure, and they talk about the afterlife which is jarring for a lapsed Unitarian such as myself, and people say, lapsed Unitarian? Isn't that (laughs) redundant? (laughs) And I ask, did Jefferson really believe in the afterlife? Well, I know that there is some controversy about this, but if he didn't believe in it, he talked about it pretty constantly. And one of the things that he imagined, this is key to my argument, in his exchanges with John Adams is that they would look down at SSF. Literally, heaven is somewhere up there where satellites now roam, and you could look down with enough granularity, you could see these things happen, and you would see the unfolding of that Republican Enlightenment dream. Now, Adams, as you would expect as a neurotic New Englander, uh, had some misgivings about history, Wasn't so sure things were going in the right direction. But at the end of the day, and I'm talking literally about the end of the days of their lives, he and Jefferson came together with a sense that they would see history unfold, that they would achieve that kind of family reunion evoking their days together in Paris, and that all the wounds that they had inflicted on each other would be fully healed as they were through and in that correspondence and then they would look down and they would see perhaps rivers of blood jefferson said must still flow before the nations of europe achieve what we have achieved and the fundamental thing we have achieved is national self-determination and adams of course in his cranky fashion thought rivers didn't quite reach it so he said, no, I think it's oceans of blood, Wolf. And of course, Adams is probably closer to the truth. And Jefferson, what is the death rate of the Napoleonic Wars? That's a rhetorical question. I was hoping John or somebody would come up with an answer. I, th- I think it's something like 20 million people. I mean, it's, uh, I guess it was a great tourist thing to go to Belgium and walk through the bones. It was really a macabre way to. But I'm an old guy. You'll forgive me for talking in this way. But what I'm getting at, and this is how we rise to the level of the political and the public, this is what matters. Imagine this family reunion of Adamses and Jeffersons taking place in heaven in a next life. And what do you do in heaven? You've always asked yourself that. It's a big question. You have to have a lot of interesting hobbies, I guess. You hope you can still use your social media But what if I told you that when you go to heaven, when you've earned your place there and your body survives, even as you survive in some new form in heaven, that it was the spectacle of life on earth unfolding progressively. This is what you would see. There's no contradiction between Jefferson's private and public life. A lot of contradictions in each one of them. And you didn't mean Andy to tell you that his ownership of all those people was for us the most profound contradiction in that life. All of this is true enough. But for Jefferson, it was the unfolding, I'll even use this word, miracle of the liberation of man under the new light that the enlightenment brought, illuminating the dark corners of human existence, enabling people to take those few simple steps to govern themselves. Who knows better how to govern themselves than all of you if you only understood what your true self-interest was? All monarchies and despotisms are forms of tyranny of men over men, are a contradiction in terms. They defeat the whole purpose of creation. But once we have this republican form of government, a form of government which we exercise as the living generation during our moment, and then we pass it on to the next generation, they do the next thing, what would that be? Well, Jefferson says this frequently. Yes, Edward Coles, he says in 1814, you must be a missionary in the cause of anti-slavery in Virginia. Don't go to Illinois and free your slaves. Stay here and make it happen. That's often cited as one of the most pathetic examples of Jefferson's deflating and uh, displacing any responsibility because all Coles wants him to do is to come out publicly against slavery. No. No it's your job it's the job for this generation is believing in the future is believing in the younger generation doing what we couldn't do is that a mistake that's at the heart of jefferson's faith it's at the heart of the whole enlightenment idea because that is by definition progressive more light more knowledge And here is what Jefferson thinks about Republican government. And you can draw your own conclusions about the history of Republican government in America. He sees Republican form of government as an engine for moral improvement. An engine for moral improvement. We will get better, we will improve, and the most fundamental way that we improve is in the way we live our lives in respect to each other, and finally it comes to the gospel of Jesus as he understands it, and that is the fundamental imperative that we all have, to love one another. It's very hard to take that idea of Jefferson's, and I think it's central to this new life we're trying to tell, and apply it to the life he actually lived Apply it to the world of the slaveholding South when Jefferson did not preside in that empire of his imagination over a world made newly free with liberation for future generations. Because, of course, what he and his colleagues gave us was an empire of slavery. Did Jefferson think that was a good thing? Absolutely not. But till his dying day, he believed, he had to believe, and in this belief, he rose to the level of a faithful person, faithful to the fundamental meanings of the Republican Revolution. It may be an age It will not be in lifetime, my lifetime, before enslaved Africans are free, but they will be free. said a lot of outrageous things. You've been seething with anger, I could tell. Uh, where's Graham? Right back here. All right, he's the man with the microphone. Yeah. An entertaining talk about a fascinating and complex character. <clears throat> I'm hearing you say that uh, Jefferson thought perhaps we were part of an unfolding whole. But um, he, along with Hamilton, were, was a founder of uh, partisan party politics. What is your perspective about his views on that? Well, as you probably know, none of the founders felt good about parties. The interesting story about Jefferson, of course, parties were associated with the part versus the whole. In a true republic where we're all virtuous, good citizens and we love each other, would we ever have profound disagreements uh, no. Uh, the, the, the really fascinating story about party formation, of course, it's all Hamilton's fault. You can take that on good authority. <laughs> uh, but the important thing is the central figure of George Washington. And it was the growing perception that Washington was either captured by or complicit in the awful development of the new federal government toward tilting toward Britain and taking on an increasingly monarchical caste. And this is the great dirty secret of early American history. Americans are born subjects of King George III, if not the second, it depends on how old they are. And that notion of being a subject of a king, that's where we all came from. Now, that didn't mean you didn't love liberty. In fact, that's the predicate of your love of liberty because you're a good Englishman and you have the rights thereof. You've got the common law. The king is a benevolent protector. That's the word that's used, the operational term. In exchange for protection, we owe allegiance. So if you begin with that idea that the default for most Americans, and Americans coming from any European country or, uh, any African country, for that matter, if we can call them countries, places in Africa or Europe, is uh, that uh, hierarchy is a given. That is, some will rule over others. That's just a fact of life. When Jefferson says, all men are created equal, that's the thing that's most stunning in his own time. is, are you serious? Are we all equal? And there were even some titters out there. I remember I mentioned that earlier. I was looking for that, and I'll report you. Uh, <laughs> That uh, idea that the monarchical default, you might call it, uh, if you are afraid that the repressed will return, are you following me now? Uh, That is, the kind of government we once had can still mobilize enough popular support and has enough people in interested positions at the top, for instance, financiers, bankers, merchants, and so forth, who might be conspiring to transform the republic into a monarchy. This is what grips Jefferson, and Hamilton loves teasing Jefferson about this. It's not fair to say teasing, and that gets on my case for doing that, because uh, the idea that the British Constitution was the best in the world, Hamilton was full front. Yes, absolutely. In that famous conversation that Jefferson records, John Adams says, well... Uh, the British Constitution would be the best in the world if it weren't for corruption. And Hamilton says, no, 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 you get it all wrong. It's corruption that makes the British Constitution work. And uh, we, we, we love that. Oh, what a smart guy. Uh, he, he certainly could uh, uh, hurl out those zingers effectively. Uh, what I'm getting at, this is a long buildup and I only get two other, one other question at most if I continue answering like this. So I encourage uh, the rest of you to ask for yes or no answers Uh, (laughs) what Jefferson Madison and their colleagues begin to think is that Washington is either a pawn or as I say complicit in a conspiracy against Liberty and he is cast as the first partisan figure it's of course Hamilton manipulating the puppet Washington that justifies the massive mobilization of American patriots, otherwise known as the Jeffersonian Republicans, to play their role in holding the federal administration to the principles articulated in the Constitution as they were explained in the ratification debates. So that idea of partisanship emerged despite our better instincts because, the, of course, the administration people never thought they were a party, The Republicans never thought they were a party. The word that everybody used, especially Madison, was faction, which is awful, because that's a bunch of self-interested people in the second row conspiring against the third and fourth rows. Not good. And this fear of factionalism, of influence, of big people influencing little people, as soon as you say all men are created equal, you've created a uh, tripwire of anxiety. Because if everything depends on our equal consent, and guess what, I don't think you're consenting equally. I think you're being manipulated by the people sitting right next to you. I've seen you talking to each other. I mean, this, uh, this paranoia about the death of the republic is something we don't begin to understand, except maybe we should these days. All right.
0: Oh, <laughs> Hi, Peter. Uh, Steve. Uh, it's Steve Herman. Uh, how are you? Good. Uh, I okay. want to ask you a question about the preface of your book, yeah. where it may have been a rationale for why another book on Jefferson. Uh, where you make reference to the fact that papers are still becoming available yeah, yeah, and yeah. maybe a new interpretation could you elaborate on yeah. uh, Oh well that's a wonderful
1: I will it won't be a yes or no answer yeah, I'll, I'll give right, it more yeah. than that why are
0: there, you know why are these papers just being paid attention to
1: Well uh, funny you should ask that cuz we were talking about some of these things uh, with my friends at the VHS uh, It's partly accessibility. Uh, The Jefferson Archive has been familiar for generations. It's been there back into the 19th century when the first edition of Jefferson's letters was published. The materials have been there, uh, but the number of letters that have been now uh, authentically verified and made accessible is unprecedented. The most important thing is the digital publications of these papers, of the uh, the early Jefferson papers ed- edited, edited by Julian Boyd beginning in 1950, for Princeton published them, took forever, and it's taking forever. They're still at it, uh, but now those papers have suddenly been turned into gold for researchers and for general citizens, because you can get to them. Uh, the number of people who could afford to buy those uh, $100 a pop uh, papers of Thomas Jefferson that's a high figure, but it, it got to be that bad. I think it's 95 or something now. That's very limited. Even libraries couldn't afford to keep those papers. But now that you can go, all of you can go to Founders Online. Uh, do you have, are there some Founders nuts out there? Are people, no Unitarians, but does anybody care about the Founders? <laughs> God, who are these people anyway? Well... <laughs> uh, founders Online, look it up. And, uh, and you can get the products of these editorial uh, projects. Uh, you won't get the full apparatus that's available through Rotunda if you're a university professor. That is, the UVA Press has published these in wonderful edition. We lucky insiders get to use, but all of you can use Founders Online. And finally, the taxpayer is getting her due back. Uh, you invested in these projects. They're very expensive, but they are wonderful to work with. Uh, you can do word searches, you can... So, uh, both Annette and I know Jefferson pretty well. We've been working with this stuff for a long time. Uh, we went back into the papers uh, as, we, as our project evolved, uh, and uh, we express and feel infinite gratitude to the wonderful editors who've made it all possible, who for generations wondered whether anybody cared. Uh, and yes, we do care, And uh, it's gratifying to see the number of people who are working with the founders online now. So uh, I I urge you to do that. If you have an interest in following up anything about Jefferson or anybody else, it's there. Uh, I don't think we're saying we are offering to you material you've never uh, been able, nobody has ever been able to look at before. Uh, It is, and we present it as an interpretation but one that can be justified. That's not the reason that is the availability of these materials. It's really the the, the match of our talents and interests, such as they are. Um, and uh, We could bring, through our shared perspective, and much of the writing of this book was, in fact, in sustained Skype conversations for years before we set anything down as we prepared to go. And... Uh, I I won't go on about this, but uh, uh, we hope that it will set a new standard, and by that I mean not preempt future work, in fact, I just blurbed a new Jefferson biography by John Bowles that's coming out next year, which is excellent. Uh, But Jefferson rewards revisiting, because as you know, as a consumer of history at least, um, that interpretations change constantly, and that's not... That's a good thing. We can see more, we can see differently. Uh, you might say it's the reverse of the Enlightenment, casting light on the past, understanding better the people who imagined America. Uh, I don't think anybody, we've had a couple of negative reviews in the Wall Street Journal for some reason, uh, the only one I really comes to mind, uh, some mixed ones, uh, but mostly very enthusiastic. I don't think anybody would say That anything like this has ever been done before. Is that terribly immodest? And I hate saying this because I'm from New England. I believe in original sin. (laughs) I'm a worm. I'm nothing. (laughs) Yeah, okay, you're laughing. I have to live with it. Okay. (laughs) I think we might have time for. I'm really sorry, I know it's one o'clock. You've all got lunch dates. But I'm good for the long haul if you care.